Last night, I had a hard time falling asleep. I couldn't shut the brain off. And uh, in the late night hours, I started to feel something that periodically happens to me. As I reflected on years past, the good things I had done, but also the mistakes that I had made, I felt shame. And it weighed on my soul. And the reality is that's something that we all feel. Today is a talk that might elicit this emotion of shame. And so could I pray one more time to cast out the unvalid, the invalid experience, feeling of shame that does not belong in the kingdom of God? There's guilt, but that's different. Shame is something that I want to cast out at this time. So if you could close your eyes. In Jesus' name, I cast out shame. It does not belong. And though today we talk about this, we might feel shame for something that we did 30 years ago, three years ago, three nights ago, or three minutes ago. We stand now, this very second, not on the strength of our deeds or our merit, but on the grace, on the gospel, on Christ and His atoning work. Standing firm on that on that firm foundation, it is well with our soul, and we banish shame, which has no place. In Jesus' name, place your hand now, Christ, Holy Spirit, upon every heart, and say, you stand because I stand. You stand on my merit, and you can stand with your chin held high. And so be accepted, little flock. Be loved today. In Jesus' name, amen. So in the last few weeks, um, last month or so, we've been in this series called Soul Food, Soul Food, where we've been talking about spiritual formation practices, spiritual disciplines that we partake in, that we do, that are good for us, that nourish our souls, hence soul food. These spiritual practices also mark us in the world. They mark us as Christians. I've started my studies in the past week towards my doctorate of ministry uh, with a concentration on faith and work. And I read my first ever book on economics. I've never read a book on ec economics before. It's just not my training. Um, and learning about free markets and democracy, something I've come to understand is that free markets, by virtue of being free, they're not regulated. Well, there's some regulation. But the point is, what keeps free markets ethical? What keeps democracy uh, democratic? What keeps these free societies, what keeps them in check, in line, especially when we don't believe in, in strong government oversight to regulate these things. What we're talking about is this missing link of ethics. What is needed is the Christian voice, the voice of the Holy Spirit, that will tell us, you know, it actually matters to not cheat on our taxes. It actually matters to tell the truth well, why don't we just fudge these numbers a little bit? Well, sir, I'm not sure if that's the right thing to do. Well, what are you, one of those Christians? Well, actually, yes, I am. Well, then in that case, I'm going to promote you because I can trust you and you tell the truth. Whatever the case may be, the people in the world, people in the world watching know that we are Christians by these formation practices. 
They know that we are Christians by these ethical things that we do. For example, telling the truth is something that I've been talking about for the last week, week or so, and we'll be talking about today and next week as well. Truth-telling, confession, honesty, and accountability. These are things we don't do just to get recognized by the world. You don't tell the world and scream, I'm a Christian, so look at me. I live better than everybody. We don't do that. We live with lives of integrity because it feeds us. I tell the truth not so that other people will notice. I tell the truth because it's good for me, because I can't live in half-truth or lying. It, it does something. It eats my soul. Like the thing is, last Sunday I was speaking to the children, and it was memorable for them. They remember Lying turns me into a zombie. Nothing like telling them that, that makes them remember. They really remembered that. The little ones were taking notes and got some really good lessons about truth-telling because it eats me up inside if I don't tell the truth. So we practice confession for our own sake to feed our souls. We practice confession because at the end of the day, when I confess my sins, I feel like I can look the world in the eye and stand free. And so confession is what we're talking about today. Actually, more so we're talking about accountability. I started talking along four headings last Sunday. The first two are, uh, you, know, uh, you know, I didn't make it all the way through those four headings. So I started off the first talking about when hiding becomes hurting. And the kids, they got this. The more we hide, the more it hurts us. It turns us into, like I said, turns you into a zombie. And telling the truth is good for us. It helps us. It doesn't help somebody else. So when hiding becomes hurting is where we started. But secondly, I talked about this process of coming out of the dark. How do we come out of the dark and how do we begin to tell the truth? Today I'm going to pick up where I left off last Sunday with that third heading, staying out of the dark. It's one thing to tell the truth. How do we keep ourselves from reverting back to the lie? How do we continually stay out of the dark? And I'm going to finish off with the fourth heading today when we come full circle from hiding to healing, from hiding to healing where we're no longer hiding anymore, but we're actively engaged in a life of healing. So those are, that's what I'm going to talk about today, staying out of the dark and from hiding to healing. And if today's talk, here's the thing. If today's talk sounds like the sex talk, that's because it is. Mind you, confession is not just about sex. I don't want you to think that that's the only sin in the world. In some Christian circles, that's like the taboo subject, and it's the main sin. It's not the main sin. It's not any greater than, uh, than murder than lying, than half-truths. It's not any greater than all of the other sins of the Ten Commandments. And I will add that different types of, of sexual sin are not greater than others. Last I checked, being heterosexual didn't get you more into heaven than being homosexual. So whatever the sexual sins there are, they're all of the same gradation. They're all, they're all of the same, they're all sin. And so we're not weighing sex more, um, but we are going to talk about that predominantly today under this, under this guise of confession. Why? Because here's the thing, friends. I've been speaking uh, Sunday after Sunday for the last seven years here in Houston, 
and preaching, and I've been waiting. When is the right time to have the talk, the talk? When is the right time to talk about the subject? I feel like the time is finally right. After seven years, this is the first time I'm having with my congregation the sex talk. And I think that in this day and age, we have to have the conversation. And so today, it's really going to be heavy on this subject of sex um, and um, in particular, lust, that's, that's the sin that we're talking about. And, you know, I, 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 ran it, I ran it once through with my staff, and they gave me the seal of approval. I'm going to do my best to keep it clean and classy, but at the same time, really cut to the heart of the matter. So lend me your ears, adults, but also young people. I know that there's youth in this room. Uh, I'm also going to say next Sunday, although it's scheduled to be the fourth Sunday, we're supposed to have a, a youth gathering. We decided to have our youth present um, as we extend this talk next Sunday. So there's not going to be a Bible study next Sunday behind the wall, especially since Saturday is going to be the, the youth social. Um, so Sunday, our youth are going to be with us for this talk. Let's get into it. Staying out of the dark. How do we stay out of the dark? It's one thing to work up the courage. I remember even for myself to work up the courage to uh, confess to a pastor when I was a much younger man and to say, you know, just to tell the truth. But how do we stay out of the dark? It's one thing to tell the truth to somebody. It's another thing to stay out of the dark. How do we stay out of the dark? Here I'd like to talk about the history of accountability. The history of Accountability. <laughs> it starts in James chapter 5, verse 16. James chapter 5, verse 16, it says, Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another so that you may be healed. You can break this down in the English and same in the Greek. You have three verbs. Confess, pray, and heal. And all of them uh, and you have the, all of them uh, in, in various uh, active or passive tenses. You will be healed. But you have to start off by confessing, and then somebody has to pray for you. And you have that repeated phrase, to one another, to one another. Friends, you can confess to God privately all you want, and God will forgive you. But in the end, the, 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 the meat of confession, the force of confession, happens when it's done to one another to one another. Confess to one another. In our woven group last Friday, in the first time in my seven years of ministry here, the men, it's just four of us, practiced confession. And I'm thinking, what have we been doing all these years? And I know the women in the prayer, prayer groups that the women have been doing it. I know in past um, groups, small groups, Guys have done it, but we really need to start doing this in earnest in our woven groups. I was talking with our woven group coordinator. This is something that regularly we need to facilitate confessing our sins to one another so that when we meet together on Fridays or whenever it is that your woven group meets, that we're not just talking about the weather or the latest, you know, but we're getting intimate, intimate. Confess your sins to one another. And then it says pray for one another. That's something you can only receive. And so we prayed for one another so that what? You might be healed. And so this is really where it started. It's, that's as organic as you can get. When James says to the first church, James was the first pastor of the first church in Jerusalem. He's not saying, 
you know, set up an office or do, you know, go and say three Hail Marys, you know, and then do penance. He just says confess to each other. Now, unfortunately, um, as the church got organized, confession became something that was more rote. It became this rigorous practice. um, And with Catholicism, confession actually became a sacrament. It became a structured practice. Now, with the Protestant Reformation in the 16 and 1700s, just follow, follow with me because this teaching will help you to understand. With the Protestant Reformation, Protestant reformers began to push back and say, we don't like this thing where the people confess to the priests. The people confess to the priests. The Protestant Reformation said, we want to take this and level it out and say everyone should be able to confess to one another in the same, early, in the same spirit of the early church in James 5. Confess to one another. And so what happened was confession became more of a level playing field, but we lost something in the process because last I checked, Protestants, we don't do it that much. Catholics, the question always is asked, when did you do your last confession? Have you been to confession? So in some ways, Protestants, we've thrown out the baby with the bathwater, so to speak, and we don't confess as much. A little bit further on in history, when you're getting, I believe, I think this was the 1800s, You had a group of Christians in England under the leadership of John and Charles Wesley. They would gather together and they would make a practice in their small groups, right? In their woven groups or in their small groups to confess their sins to one another. And they had set questions. And in case that sounds rigorous, it actually worked quite well for them. And as John and Charles Wesley, in their holy club it was called, I know that sounds corny, but it, was, it, was, it caught on. Not only did it catch on, it became a million people strong. A million people strong. And this was, in, this was just a lay movement. It was, it was a parachurch movement. It got so strong that eventually it had to become the Methodist church. The Methodist church was built on practices like confession and meeting in small groups and telling the truth to one another. I really hope that we can begin to move towards that. Friends, I remember having a conversation with somebody here in the church and saying, you know, you really could use some spiritual direction. You could use some counseling through this. And and this person told me, why do I need that? I have you. And I was thinking to myself, he's right. We have each other. I mean, I could easily listen to your issues and say, man, you need help. You need therapy. But we have each other. You have free therapy right here. Right here. And so the beauty of this whole thing, you know, is that confession to one another is therapeutic. It's healing. It's powerful. I'm going to move now to the 1900s, the the 20th century. There was a man named Billy Graham. Have you heard of him? Billy Graham was very handsome and a very uh, influential preacher. And the thing is, as he preached, it was almost as if everybody was waiting to see when he would, when he would wind up on the headlines. Handsome young preacher ends up having an affair or mismanaging his finances or some kind of a scandal. And everybody waited and waited and waited, and it never happened. Billy Graham taught the church, that it was possible to be a high-profile minister and not have to have scandal. How did he do it? 
Well, it goes back to a fateful day in Modesto, California. Modesto, California, Billy Graham and his team met in a hotel room. At that time, it was just all men in ministry. And him and his team, all men, they made, the, they made this deal, this pact. It's called the Modesto Manifesto, the Modesto Manifesto, where Billy Graham and his team decided that they would never be alone with a woman publicly or privately. They would never be alone. Not because women have the, the cooties. I don't want this to come across the wrong way. Because a lot of you are going to be in interpersonal work relationships where you're going to have to work, where you're going to have to work with people of the opposite gender. And that if, that, if it's necessitated, it's not a bad thing. I'm not making this out to be a taboo subject. But for a high-profile minister to keep the integrity, to go to that length, that's what they did. That was their accountability. Was it extreme? Perhaps. Did it work? Yes. Because Billy Graham to this day has had no scandal. So the Modesto Manifesto, that was one way that accountability worked for them. There's a next stage in history here that I must teach because it's an important phenomenon to how we wound up where we are today. It's called the sexual revolution. The sexual revolution of the 1960s. Um, not long ago, I saw a video. <laughs> this is going to sound bad, right? <laughs> it was a video of elderly people. Elderly people. And these older people, uh, they were placed in front of screens to watch pornography uh, that was modern. I, I don't know what to say, but that's come out recently. And these people, having lived a long time, their responses were humorous because they were laughing. <laughs> they were shocked. They were like, wow, that's just bizarre. The reason I bring that up is because what we have showing up on our screens these days, even on the screens of your children, and I'm going to talk about this today, we are beginning to recognize as normative when they are not normative. We are beginning to see them as this is what intimacy means and this is where it gets scary. Our young women, our girls, are beginning to see these things as well and say that's what it means to get a man. I have to behave and perform this way. Men are beginning to think normatively. This is what it means to have pleasure. This is what intimacy really is. It is not. It is a distortion, a product of the sexual revolution in the 1960s was the cinema, what's the word here, cinematizing, cinematizing, putting it on the big screen for all the world to see what was once a private and intimate and holy act, unitive. Pope John Paul II wrote a theology of the body that talked about sex as a unitive thing. Why would you share something that was unitive with the entire world? Why? Because the entire world wants to see. And when we see what's on the screen, we think that that's normative. And you have the, the fallout of that, the screwball comedies. I remember when I, when I was growing up, you know, wandering in the, in the VHS uh, video store. We were talking about VHS today. You know, and you'd see the strangest video covers of, you know, it doesn't even bear repeating, but you had the birth of screwball comedies. 
screwball comedies. And I guess the air of that today would be like, I don't know, American Pie or the Van Wilder movies? I don't know. I don't, I don't watch them. Um, but the screwball comedies, the main premise seemed to be one thing. You would have a young 18-year-old male that says, I can't die without having sex. And if I don't have sex, I'm going to die. As if it was the pinnacle of existence. And in one sense, it is. God in his infinite wisdom created the most intense, beautiful experience. But we've fetishized it. The sexual revolution has turned it into something that is, uh, I can't die with it. It's, it, 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 it humiliates virgins, which I, I think is a tremendous travesty uh, for those who choose to be sexually pure. You know, there's the movie, The 40-Year-Old Virgin, as if to make fun. But the thing is, virginity is a beautiful gift. To have your virginity, to keep your virginity, this is something that It's like the one thing that you have and that if you give it away and you lose it, it's, it's a tremendous loss. Virginity is a gift and it is honorable and beautiful. But the sexual revolution says, give that gift, that precious commodity, give it away immediately as soon as you can with someone that you don't know, will, that you don't even know if you're going to spend the rest of your life with. So... You know, the fallout, really, of, of the sexual revolution in the 1960s has been what I believe, in my opinion, to be the rise of these Christian accountability groups. Now, non-Christians, they don't even, it's not even an issue. Why, why, why refrain? Why have accountability? It's everybody's doing it. Everybody's doing it. One of the biggest deceivers, one of the biggest lies. Well, honey, everybody's doing it. All the guys struggle with this. That's not an excuse, guys. It's not an excuse. Don't use it. And if some of you guys go home and get into trouble, <laughs> got to have the talk. It's not an excuse to say all the guys are doing it. It's not an excuse. So what happens is the rise of Christian accountability as men get together and say, wow, you know, I grew up watching some of these screwball comedies. I grew up exposed, and it really jacked me up, and I'm trying to get right now. And, um, you know, I, Christian accountability has worked. It has not worked. It's been very imperfect. Um, today, I think we are experiencing the real fallout of the sexual revolution in marriages that are being completely shattered. Uh, you're talking 20, 30, 40 years uh, in relationships, in job loss even. I mean, back in the day when you're talking prohibition era, 1920s, when the real taboo thing was what? Alcohol. And then they formed Alcoholics Anonymous because people needed to quit drinking because if they didn't stop drinking, they would die. Well, what's the big deal about sex? It's a private thing. You know, viewing pornography, I'm not hurting anybody. Give it a couple of years. You can lose everything. Your life, your, uh, your, your marriage, your relationships, your job, your integrity, and yes, your life as well. Your life as well. To think that this is a harmless thing that will not take everything, it 
That's what lust is. It's a hunger that says, I can't get enough, I can't get enough. It will consume yourself in the end. So we have accountability groups. We try to talk about it. We try to, but the thing, you know, it's, it's, it's very imperfect. A big dimension to, the big, a big obstacle to real honesty is this shame thing that I've spoken about. Shame, especially, especially in the church. We don't tell the full truth. Why? Because it'll jeopardize my standing in the church. And I admit, it is hard to be truly, truly honest here and amongst each other. And that's kind of the yin and the yang, the struggle of honesty in the church. On the one hand, we have standing in order to be able to, we have standing in the church. On the other hand, in, the only way to have standing in the church is to be honest and to be open. The prerequisite for membership in the church is only one thing, sinfulness. And I know it's hard Breaking through somehow, I mean, even for me, this is my attempt to break through, and I hope by leading with my own weakness and example that I can break through to honesty so that all of you can also break through to honesty. Guys, I don't, I really, I don't want this, I'm not pouring out my life for this church so that we can just show up on Sunday for two hours and just do this, do this. I, 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 I live, die, and bleed so that we can be a community of intimacy honesty, and really grow deeper and grow deeper. Accountability, friends, is not enough. And here, you know, this is where I think as the fallout of the sexual revolution, you know, it's really starting to hit the fan and we're starting to see, wow, you know, we are a society that really needs help. Next Sunday, you're going to see the real statistics. Next Sunday, you'll see the real statistics. Um, there are things that can be done. If you're going to have to work up some courage, but you can talk to me. I'm not going to give you a spanking or get on your case, but I can direct you. There's more than accountability. There are treatment alternatives. Maybe for some of you, the only thing you need is, is just some reporting. And next week, the video from Covenant Eyes, it's going to sound like an advertisement, but Vetting it together with our staff team, I do think it is a good video to watch for numerous reasons. It has a theological basis. Covenant Eyes is an interesting product. It's something that you install on your device, on all of your devices. It can go on all of your devices, including your phones. You're thinking, I don't need that. Why do I need that? You need it because your children, if you have children, are using your devices, I think every single person in this room should have covenant eyes installed. It's my opinion that every single person should be in some accountability relationship. Every single one of us should have covenant eyes installed on our devices. Even if you don't have a problem. Because somebody else will use your device. And you want to be in communication with somebody else about where you're going online. Because... Entering into the internet is like entering into any back alley, dark alley, in any part of the city at any time of the night. I don't know how anybody can navigate that safely. And the thing about Covenant Eyes is it's not this, it doesn't strive to be the perfect firewall. Like nothing will break through. There is no such thing as the perfect firewall. Covenant Eyes values relationship and reporting 
more than filtering. And that's why I think it's very effective because it's not about being the perfect firewall. It's more about being a more stronger, better facilitator of conversation. Well, I see that it was 3 a.m. and you were kind of hanging out on YouTube. What was going on there? Why were you, why were you doing that? Oh, well, yeah, um, you know, I might as well tell the truth. Or, you know, you were futzing around and trying to uninstall the software. Why were you doing that? You know, call each other out on stuff like that. It is a very effective, I think, a very effective tool. But if you feel like you need more, if your problem... Let me just say this. The thing about internet filter reporting software, the great thing about Covenant Eyes is that you can install it on all devices. But the thing about it is, you're smart. You know how to get around those things, don't you? And if you find that you are perpetually getting around those things, you might have a bigger problem than you thought. And an internet software is not enough. Actually, you might need triage. And I'm saying this for the sake of your marriage, for the sake of your children, your future children, for the sake of your own life. You need this. Friends, do you know how easy it is in our city to go to a massage parlor? I have never been. But from what I hear, it's as simple as scheduling an appointment and showing up. Regular pornography use turns to habitual pornography use. They'll talk about the chemistry behind that next week. And from there, you say, I can't get enough. I need the real thing. You go down the block, in some cases, down the block to the nondescript shop massages. You go in and they give you an alternative for something more. We need to protect ourselves from the very beginning. And we need to protect our children. We need to protect our children. In this city, we need to protect our families. If the internet filter thing is not, if the covenant eyes thing is not enough, then you need triage. You're going to need... You're, you're, there's, there, there, you're going to need a lot more than that. And if that's the case, really, because I'm a pastor, because I work in different recovery circles, I do. Whether it's, you know, uh, I'm acquainted with people in Alcoholics Anonymous or adult, children's, adult children of alcoholics or, you know, the different recovery groups celebrate recovery. There are growing, growing resources. I can help you. This is something that I can direct you out, outpatient, outpatient. I want to give you three do nots. And I know I'm still in that third heading, staying out of the dark. And it's a long conversation, I know. But there's, I can tell, I can tell because every single one of your eyes are like on me. And I know I have you. This is a very pertinent subject. Three do nots, especially for parents especially for parents, three fill in the blanks. Number one, don't assume they're not doing it. Don't assume they're not doing it. If the statistics are right, and you'll hear them next week, if the statistics are right, now that we are into summer vacation, chances are some of our woven children have already viewed pornography. 
now that we're into summer, summer break, more idle time, more time on devices. If the statistics are right, chances are some of our children, even the small ones, have already viewed something. If the statistics are right, a good fraction of our Christian men in this room in the last six months have viewed pornography. Again, I'm, I'm sorry if this causes a hard conversation to occur after church today. But don't assume they're not doing it. And this goes both ways, friends. It's not just the men anymore. It's not just the men. It is the women as well. It is women as well. So don't assume that people are not doing it. The second do not. Do not, especially if you are a parent. Do not, do not allow unsupervision, situations of unsupervision for your children, even at friends' houses. Do not. If your child is going up the street to a neighbor's house, ask them, how do you use your devices? Is it open and unfiltered? Are there Apple restrictions set in place? I ask this of my children's parents, our children's friends' parents. And you know what the surprise has been? Most of the time, almost all of the time, the response that I get is very positive. Yes, absolutely. Our children are only allowed to view YouTube Kids, YouTube Kids, and even then we're watching to see where they're going on the devices. Very, very important, friends. And I'm going to share my own personal story about my own first exposure. Don't, if, if, if your child is at a friend's house and the parent says, they're fine, they'll, they'll, they're just kids. Kids are kids. Don't let them go there. That's not me being a harsh kind of like a witch hunting Christian. I'm talking about the safety of your kids because it takes one glimpse to wreck the rest of their lives. And I want our children to be safe. So number one, don't assume that they're not doing it. Number two, don't allow situations of unsupervision. Number three, don't leave your internet unlocked, unfiltered, unmonitored. I mean it. I think every single one of you here should have covenant eyes installed. And I'm not getting any, any sales commission on this. This is solely on the basis of, of, of my, the best interest of my congregation. Don't leave it unlocked, unfiltered, unmonitored. Be involved in conversations regularly. Where did you go? I mean, I know that sounds a little bit harping. Maybe some of you older parents have found a better way to do this than I have. How did you spend your time? Where were you viewing? What apps are they allowed to use? Chil uh, parents, your children should not be on YouTube without any um, uh, restrictions in place. You know why? Because of that darn sidebar. That if the, your kids want to look up a video on Dinosaur Train, on PBS Kids, you'd be surprised what kind of stuff Dinosaur Train brings up in its suggested viewing list? You don't want them to accidentally say, wow, what does this mean? What is this, what is this video about? You don't want that. So, do it before, and especially if your kids are very small, do it before they start getting a little bit more tech savvy. They get tech savvy quick. You know, the reality of the times that we live in, friends, Staying out of the dark, this third heading. Staying like, you know, I don't want, as a pastor, 
I don't want to see that. I don't want to live and I don't want to be exposed to that. It's impossible. It's impossible. You go to a movie and, oh my gosh, I wish I couldn't see that. It's impossible. A week ago, two weeks ago, I was checking our church Twitter account. Twitter account. Our church Twitter account. And under the notifications, it shows, it shows people that like, uh, new followers. There was somebody that liked one of my sermons, on tw- sermon posts on Twitter. The picture was innocuous. The name was there. And you know how, I didn't even click on the name. On the pro- you know how the profile, it just gives you a preview of the profile. Right? I didn't even click on it. I hovered over the name of the person that liked my sermon, that liked this post, Twitter post. And the preview that pulled up was full frontal female nudity. I wish I could unsee it. I told my wife about it promptly. Full frontal nudity. Just in a preview. Within the span of half a second, I had to go in uh, and report it and block it. And that made it go away. But that stuff, it, you see how it finds us on a church Twitter account? Part of me was thinking, I don't need to even go back into there to report it and block it. Because these things eventually go away. Somebody else reports it and blocks it. But I'm thinking, somebody's going to want to find out about our church and say, hey, what are they saying on Twitter? And who is this? That Whoa! You know what I mean? We can't stay out of the dark in this day and age. The dark has tendrils that come out and say, look, look, look at this. Pulls us back in. We can't just stay out of the dark. We have to move from hiding to healing. And that's the fourth and last piece. We have to be healthier whole, stronger, thank God for my own accountability. I am involved in relationships of accountability where other men regularly, weekly, sometimes more than weekly, we're talking about this. Have you viewed anything explicit? Have you acted out in any way? For me, accountability has to be very strong because for me to lapse in this area, jeopardize, I, I, it's just not good. Just say that. Had I been a lot weaker that day on Twitter, had I been going on less sleep, had I been quarreling with my wife a lot, had I been restless, irritable, discontented, would I have been tempted to scroll down on that Twitter profile a little bit more? Would I have been? Yes. As your pastor, yes. Because I'm human. Because I'm prone to weakness. What does this mean? Christians, you can't just not do it. You have to be healthy, stronger, free, clean, not resentful, getting along in your marriage, growing stronger in your faith so that when the day comes and temptation hits you, you can say, report, block, no sweat. Check it in with my accountability partner. Yeah, this showed up in front of my eyes, but I didn't linger. We have to be healthy in order to be able to weather the temptation. You're familiar, if you're familiar with the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Joseph was a handsome young man. I mean, talk about a screwball comedy. 
This is a screwball comedy scenario right there. Every day I'm working for the man, but his wife is in bed and she wants me to sleep with her. Every day, every day, you think that she would wear him down with her persistence. It's not enough to stay out of the dark. The dark will find you in this day and age. It will find you. You have to move from hiding to health. Let's dive into this fourth and last heading. From hiding to healing. And I know that this is a little bit long, but I'm landing the plane here gently. Friends, can I just say, now that we're talking about healing, the number one thing that will keep you healthy, unhealthy, The number one thing that will keep you unhealthy is a bad view of sex. Because there's something in the allure of the forbidden that you know you shouldn't look at that, but it's so, it's it's like, it's like, what what is that? What is that Dustin Hoffman movie? movie, uh, Come on, guys, Miss Robinson? The Graduate. Right? I mean, there's something so intriguing about that. Another human being freely giving themselves to you. No, I shouldn't. It's dirty. It's evil. It's wrong. Don't think about it. Don't, guys, don't think about the pink elephant. Okay? Did I tell you, don't think about the pink elephant? Don't think about the pink elephant. It's evil. Don't think about the pink elephant. It's satanic. Don't think about the pink elephant. Don't think about, you're thinking about the pink elephant, are you not? And that's the thing. When we've tabooized sex as the most evil thing in the world, we've already made it, we've already set it up on this pedestal where it's the most important thing in the world. It's not. It's not. You can live, you can die without having sex. Sex is a gift. It's not a mandatory requirement for life. It's a gift. It's a wonderful thing. You know what's another fallout of the sexual revolution? Another fallout is Dr. Ruth. Who knows who Dr. Ruth is? You got to be older, a little bit older to remember Dr. Ruth. Dr. Ruth Westheimer was a Jewish woman that would appear at 11.30 every night on your television screen, uh, not every Saturday night, I don't know, to teach you how to really explore sex. Of course, it's on at 11.30 at night because that's when the taboo hours start. By the way, wives, your husbands should not be on the television screen past 11.30. Just saying. Because we get our best information at 11.30 at night when we're tired from these late night television shows, don't we? Sex is a gift. Sex is a gift. Unfortunately, we are learning about it in these... We're learning about it from the wrong people. If you really want to learn how to pleasure your spouse, ask me. (laughs) Not because I'm I'm good at it, but because as your pastor, I want to be the one to teach you for crying out loud. Why should you listen to Dr. Ruth? Why do you have to listen to the sexual revolution experts? They're going to tell you to buy all this paraphernalia. They're going to tell you to try this and that. Listen, The equipment works. Children, young people, listen, the equipment works. The sexual revolution wants to tell you, check to see if it works. Try out and see what makes you feel good. You don't have to do that. 
Sometimes the equipment works on, even on its own when you're sleeping. The equipment works. Don't explore it. Don't play with it. You don't have to do that. That's so countercultural, isn't it? Somewhere the psychologist inside us is saying, I don't know if that's right. We should explore ourselves. That's the sexual revolution talking. Explore yourselves. Find out what feels good. You don't have to do that. Do that with your partner when you grow up, when you're responsible. Do that when you're ready. There's no reason, to quit, you know, no reason to fidget with the equipment. It works. Listen, guys, you know, those of you that have been in premarital counseling with me, we can get very, very detailed. I want to be the one to teach you. I covet that position. The church should teach us how to have rip-roaring, hot, good sex. Not the world. Not, not, not the sexual revolution. We can talk about these things. We can talk about finishing well. Men, how to finish the right way. We can talk about contraception. We can talk about different positions. We can talk about all of these things. Yes, we can. Why? You know, I remember the, I remember the one time I heard a preacher talk about sex and it made me blush. You know who it was? It was Tim Keller, Reverend Tim Keller of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. And nonchalantly, he was talking about sex and giving a sermon about sex and saying, yeah, you know, sex is a wonderful thing. It's really great when Kathy and I, when we finish together at the same time, that's when it's really, really awesome. When we finish together, when we can both experience it at the same time. And I'm like, woo, that's like, just got a little warm in here. But the thing is, you know what? The church is the place to talk about that. Not Dr. Ruth at 11.30 p.m. at night. Don't listen. You don't need to be on TV at 11.30 p.m. at night. Don't. Go to bed. Your wife is waiting for you. Your wife's waiting for you. You want to talk about this? Let's talk about it. Buy me a beer. We can talk about it ad nauseum. Not because I'm an expert. But honestly, guys, I've thought about it a lot. I've thought about it a lot. We can talk about cycles. We can talk about how often you want to do it. We can talk about when, you know, we can talk about the thoughts that you're bringing into the marriage bed. I am a believer that the marriage bed is to be kept holy, not just physically, but mentally as well. The marriage bed is to be kept holy, not just physically. Well, I don't bring other women into my marriage bed. Do you? Jesus says that if you even look lustfully at a woman with your eyes, you're committing adultery. What's going on in our thoughts in the marriage bed? You see how much there is to talk about. Because there's a lot to talk about, I want to provide and close with a script. And I know this is getting long. Forgive me, but this is the talk, right? We'll close with this. Five sentences on the bottom of your bulletin. This is so hard, and it's a work in progress. When I first had the talk with my son, I did. I've had the talk with my son already. This summer, I have to have the talk with my daughter. I thought to myself, this is hard. <laughs> how, how are my people doing it? At least I have theological resources to draw from, but it's still hard. So, having tried it, talked through it, and you can tell me, you know, if, if there's improvements to this script, I've written a five-sentence script for you to use if you decide that this summer is the summer you're going to tell your kids and terrify them forever. But the script goes like this. 
how to keep, how to talk to your youth, how to keep our kids out of the dark. Number one, say this. Son, daughter, it's normal and it's not bad to be curious. Now, I frame it in that word curious because especially if your children are very young, they don't understand what, what, what am I seeing? So we call it being curious. And you tell them it's not bad. It's not bad to be curious. Because what we're doing is we're setting the stage and approaching this less from, you did what? You know, you grow hair on your hands if you do that. Don't do that. A, that'll freak out your child, and B, they'll never tell you the truth again. They will only become better liars and better hiders. Believe me, I know. Working with other men in accountability and in recovery, that's how their conversation with their parents went. You did what? Don't ever do that again. And that's it. That's the end of the conversation. Don't approach it that way. Now that we are the grown-ups, I can tell you, my parents never had the talk with me. They didn't know. They didn't know that the advent of the internet age was here. So, don't shame your kids. If you do, they will revert to lying better and to hiding better. Instead, take this angle. This is the second sentence. But hiding this will hurt you. Hiding this will hurt you. We have to put an order here. This is like in triage, those of our doctors here, when you perform triage, I, I don't know, you, you're determining what the worst symptoms are first. Is that correct, Dr. Paul? And you say an order of treatment, right? Let's say you found out that your child has been viewing stuff on YouTube without you even noticing it. By the way, the, the, the statistics are saying the average age of exposure to pornography for our children, average is 11 if that's the mean average, you're talking a range that can go as early as six years old up to 18. In my unprofessional opinion, my own opinion, I think the average age of exposure is eight, eight years old, because that's what I'm hearing from more and more people, eight years old. So your child was exposed to something accidentally or whatever. They were exposed to something, and instead of shaming them, you have to do triage, because what they saw, and with the chemistry firing in their brains, they will remember for the rest of their lives. So you have to perform emergency triage. What do you do? How do you approach this? What's the first order of damage to address? It's the hiding. The number one thing to address before the sex itself, before the behavior itself, you have to talk about the hiding. Because if you do not address the hiding, and that's why I talked about it last Sunday, if we don't address the hiding issue first, what's going to happen is, you know, the behavior will continue and they'll only hide it better. Hiding this will hurt you. You think that you'll be able to get away with it. And it's not that I'm trying to hound you down, but, you know, just like Adam and Eve in the garden, Go back to the garden. What would the world have been like if Adam said, God, I did it. I'm sorry. I know it was wrong. I think this world would be very different that we live in today. But instead, what did Adam say? I'm sorry I'm picking on the men here today, but, you know, I'm a dude, so I have to speak to dudes. What would it, but instead, Adam said, no, I, I, you know, fig leaf, I'm hiding. She did it. She made me do it. Hiding. Hiding is the first sin. In triage, the first thing in this situation, if you've caught someone in the act, 
red-handed, so to speak. Number one is to talk about the hiding. <gasps> you did what? Don't do that. Just say, you know, the hiding. You know, you got caught. Okay, so hiding it will hurt you. I hope next time you can tell me the truth. Or if you're feeling curious, you can talk to me. I can help you. Now, the third sentence is when you get into the actual meat, when you address the actual lust itself, right? So triage. First, we start with the hiding. We disarm shame. Then we get into this main content. And this is where you're going to have to teach, friends. Parents, you are going to have to teach. And I'm going to teach you now how to teach. Use Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 3, chapter 4, what you have there is a built-in guide for parents to teach their children. It's called a father's instruction. Watch out for two women in the world. I, I, this, I don't want this to sound sexist because while it is true, one of the women is the adulteress, the other woman is lady wisdom. Lady wisdom. Teach your children. That's, that's actually the approach I use. We read through Proverbs chapter 3 and chapter 4. Proverbs 3 and 4. Remember that. Proverbs 3 and 4. You have the teaching of a parent to a child. Watch for wisdom. Choose the way of wisdom. Stay away from the path that leads to death. The door that leads to the adulteress's house. I saw a young man lacking discretion wandering over to her house. He was swallowed up as if in a pit. So teach them. What you have to teach them, essentially, is that sex is a powerful and good gift from God. It's like Spider-Man. With great responsibility comes great, with great power comes great responsibility. It's a powerful thing. Emphasize this is powerful, powerful, and it's a good thing. If you say it's bad, you know, then they're just going to hide it. Revert back to the hiding. Okay, wrap it up here. Sex is powerful and good, but here's where we have to parent can't just teach. Now we have to parent. But you're not ready yet. You're not ready to enjoy this gift responsibly. So here I'm going to set guidelines. You are not allowed to be on safari. In fact, I'm going to disable safari. You can disable safari completely on devices. Apple has improved their restrictions immensely, immensely. You can basically have a smartphone that's like a dumb phone. Give it to your kid. There you go. Have fun. Oh, Dad, I want to be able to explore whatever I want. I'll give you that permission when you're 18 years old or, you know, when you're a little bit older and more responsible with your choices. Right now, right now you're, 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 you're going you're gonna to see something and it's going to fire dopamine and get you all crazy. And finally, of course, I'm saying this because I love you and I want you to be safe. I'm saying this because I, want, I love you and I want you to be safe. If you're going to have the talk, use this as a script. So just a general overview. Start off, disarm shame. Disarm the shame. Address, do triage. Address number one, hiding. And then teach. Talk about sex. It's a good thing, but you need to be responsible and old enough to enjoy it. And I'm telling you this because I love you. Affirm your commitment to them. Friends, I'm going to conclude now with this story. I think I was in first grade. I think I was in first grade. I went over to my next door neighbor's house. I wasn't very, I didn't listen to my mom that much. I went over to my, she told me don't go there, but I did. He took me up to his room. He was in second grade, I think. 
And underneath his bed, he had a pornographic magazine. How old is first grade, guys? Six years old. What I saw that day was indelibly seared on my mind. That was magazine. It, w- it was incredibly destructive. Destructive. I go to great lengths and I make sure to do a lot of work to stay healthy today. But I'll tell you the truth. I am a human being. I am male. I have normal, healthy sexual desires. That should not be fed crack cocaine at six years old. Curiosity is normal. But when you feed curiosity crack cocaine at six years old, you have problems, major problems. We are a generation that's been raised on crack cocaine. Similar, similar, similar chemical patterns. I've known men, I've, I know men who have beaten alcohol and drugs, recovering people in Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous, and they say the hardest thing for them to kick, harder than heroin, I, I kid you not, I've heard this firsthand, the hardest thing to kick was pornography. Kicking pornography was harder than heroin and alcohol. I believe it. The hope is it's possible. It's possible to kick it. It's possible to stay clean and free. I know people. I am one of those. That's as much as a confession you'll get out of me. It is possible. And it's wonderful. It's wonderful. It's a wonderful, wonderful gift. Let's pray. Guys, I know this was long. Please forgive me. I know this was a long sermon, but it was the talk. And uh, Miss Ashley, we will wrap up shortly here. We've gone a little bit long. Hear, O sons, the instruction of a father. And give attention that you may gain understanding, for I give you sound teaching. Do not abandon my instruction. When I was a son to my father, tender and the only son in the sight of my mother, then he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words. Keep my commandments and live. Acquire wisdom. Acquire understanding. Do not forget nor turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake lady wisdom, and she will guard you. Love her, and she will watch over you. The beginning of wisdom is... Acquire wisdom. With all your acquiring, get understanding. Prize her and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a garland of grace and will present you with a crown of beauty. But, my son, give attention to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may observe discretion and your lips may reserve knowledge. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey and smoother than oil is her speech. But in the end, bitter as wormwood, sharp as two-edged sword, her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways are unstable. She does not know it. Now then, my sons, listen to me. And I'm going to extend this. Daughters, sons and daughters, listen. 
Don't depart from the words of his mouth. Keep your way far from adultery. Don't go near the door of that house or you will give your vigor to others and your years to the cruel one. And strangers will be filled with your strength, quite literally so. And your hard-earned goods, it will go to the house of an alien. And you will groan at your final end when your flesh and your body are consumed. And you say, how I have hated instruction and my heart spurned reproof. I have not listened to the voice of my teachers nor inclined my ear to my instructors. I was almost in utter ruin in the midst of the assembly and congregation. Lord, now in Jesus' name, I speak out the power of your healing and your life here at Woven Covenant Church. Let every single person be touched because every single person has been touched by the fallen fruit in this area. Renew them, redeem and restore. And I pray that you would do a work of healing now in Jesus' name that would begin today, begin today, begin today and result in openness that would result not in perfection because chances are if you're addicted, you're going to go home today and do it right again, right away. That's the way addiction works. You'll hear the best sermon in the world on the subject and you'll still do it. That means you are addicted. So in Jesus' name, move us not into resolutions of I'll never do it again or I'll be perfect now. Move us out of shame. Release us from this bondage that actually keeps us pinned down and take us out into openness and to healing. And in this place of openness and healing, do your good work, Lord Jesus. Do your good work. Thank you for the faithfulness and the listening of everybody here. I pray that, Lord, for this long sermon, that they would take it home, reflect, and find healing as they decide to make the next best choice. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a Woven Church podcast. Woven Church is a multi-ethnic missional church that meets in West Houston. We invite you to check us out on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. To find out more, visit us online at www.wovenchurch.org. That's www.wovenchurch.org.